where I see things going uh, from that from that point of view is really bringing together and having a better understanding of animal comfort, productivity, bringing those things together and realizing that when we have an animal that is less impacted by environmental scenarios, by different disruptions, doesn't matter what the disruption is, but we we utilize the, the comfort, behavior, productivity, health, that they all interact with each other. And I, I think we're, we're right on the verge of understanding way more about that and using that to our advantage, using it to the animal's advantage to reduce, reduce risk, increase health, increase performance, increase cattle comfort on a daily basis, which, you know, we're, we're trying to produce that high quality protein, that, that high quality superior eatability protein and every day matters. And, and if we're trying to, you know, let that animal uh, do its, you know, it's, you know, reach its genetic capabilities, every day matters on our, on our point of view as animal caretakers is every day matters. And if we can uh, minimize any bumps in the road, we're going to end up with a better uh, quality product at the end. So I, I think it's, I, I think over the next five and 10 years, we're going to start evolving how we think about it. It's not, I just do this and this is the, the you know, however, increase in gain or things like this, but it's, if I do this, it impacts gain, it impacts, uh, you know, how much manure I'm hauling out, it, it impacts, uh, you know, the, the animal comfort, you know, it the animal health, I think all of it's going to coincide and uh, just finished a, a pretty cool project that we started to kind of wrap our heads around that and water, okay? If we make a couple of different management decisions, how much less water do we need to and that, that you know, it's been eye-opening. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now, you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Mycotoxins can threaten cattle performance. DSM offers a portfolio of solutions to help mitigate the impact of mycotoxins in your feed. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Welcome to the Beef Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Randy Buzzard, and it's my pleasure to bring you the trending issues and topics with the best and brightest minds of the beef industry. Today, we are joined by a friend of mine, Dr. AJ Tarpoff. Dr. Tarpoff is an associate professor and beef extension veterinarian at Kansas State University, where he specializes in beef cattle production medicine. He earned his bachelor's, master's, and doctorate in veterinary medicine from Kansas State, after earning his DVM, he accepted an associate feedlot veterinarian position at the Alberta, Health, Alberta Beef Health Solutions in Southern Alberta, Canada. His focus in practice was herd-based cattle production medicine, research field trials, hands-on feedlot employee training, disease surveillance and mitigation, and federal import-export duties. I want to dig into that a little bit later. In 2016, he returned to the state of Kansas to the Department of Animal Sciences and Industry at, K at Kansas State University to serve as an assistant professor and beef extension veterinarian. Today, he works closely with producers, practicing veterinarians, and members of, in of industry to bring relevant extension and education that improves cattle health and the productivity of the beef industry. 
welcome to the show, AJ. I feel like I can hopefully call you that. So uh, welcome to the show and thank you for being here today. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, well, thank you for being here. We appreciate your time. Um, we're going to keep you in your office for a little bit instead of having to be outside in the heat. It's still hot here in Kansas. So anyway, to start off with, you know, I know you in real life um, and I kind of know more about your background. But for our audience who don't know you that well, can you tell us a bit about, you know, how you got involved in the beef industry and your career path so far? Besides, you know, I know I touched on some things in your bio, but that's absolutely not all encompassing. So we just love to hear more about how you got where you're at. Absolutely. So it's a, uh, uh, I, I grew up within agriculture. Uh, I, I would have been, uh, you know, fourth generation in the United States, deeply ingrained in, in, in the cattle business. And I grew up, uh, you know, running around with my dad, buying cattle all through uh, Southern Illinois and Missouri. And I got to see the feedlots, cow-calf backgrounds, farmer feeders. Uh, so I got to see a, 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 get a, just a wonderful amount of exposure to the cattle business and cattle operations throughout the Midwest. And I realized pretty quick that, wow, I, I, I could do this as a career, right? I really want to. And I always had a drive for science, uh, really enjoyed sciences, learning. I mean, I, I, I just, I soaked up anything and everything I could. And it's a, it's a funny story. My dad and I, we, uh, as in our travels, we would ask around large animal veterinarians through kind of that region that if you wanted to be a veterinarian, where would you go? If you were just gonna work on cattle, where would you go? And every single one of those large animal vets said Kansas State University. And, <laughs> yeah, right. and that that's that was a huge, huge perk. I said, okay, and my I remember the conversation. Dad and I, he looked at me, he goes, well, what do you think? I said, I think I need to make a trip, trip to Kansas. So we came out and uh, you know I was finishing high school came out to visit K-State. I, I wanted to visit. I wanted to meet some people, uh, visit animal science department. I came to the animal science department and right away I knew this is home. I, I just felt so comfortable, loved the people, loved the environment, uh, loved the, the campus and the university. Uh, so it was a pretty easy decision to come to K-State to, to learn more, to really immerse myself in the cattle industry. And it that, that really spread to other opportunities. I, I ended up in South Texas uh, during my, oh, it would have been my sophomore or junior year. I worked on the King Ranch in South Texas as a feedlot cowboy. So oh, I, uh, I I completely packed up and uh, lived in a bunkhouse and, and, and legitimately worked as a cowboy. And I, I, I loved it, loved every minute of it. And I, I came back to finish my undergrad degree. And long and behold, I got into vet school. So, uh, you know, I kind of went from you know, background and understanding immersion in the, the, you know, agriculture and under, you know, really wanting to be ingrained and involved with the beef business to being a feedlot cowboy and being out there doing it to learning the education from animal science and then had the opportunity to take it a step further and go to veterinary school. Uh, but I, I couldn't leave that alone. I couldn't leave well enough alone. And uh, some of the mentors that I uh, got tied into, well, I ended up doing a graduate degree at the same time. So yeah, uh, I noticed you that you did those at exactly the same time. There was no staggering. There was no staggering. I didn't think through that completely, but uh, <laughs> looking back, that was a great idea. Uh, I was able to get really maximize my exposure and the skill set that I needed to go uh, further and the same amount of time, which was actually pretty cool. So I, and I, that the master's and the graduate degree that I got was very hands-on. I, I actually packed up and moved to Nebraska to do my graduate research at a big commercial feedlot. 
but I lived on the feedlot and I trained crews. So I got to really take another stab at, okay, I've been a feedlot cowboy. Now I, I take what I've learned. I, I use the information and the knowledge that I've gotten, but now I get to go teach people. And that was, you know, it's research is one thing, but whenever you take skills and you teach somebody else and see them thrive, it, it just takes it to another level. So no, that's, so that's, you know, I, I've been from, you know, and you mentioned earlier, I've been from South Texas all the way into Canada and back. So it's, it's fun to see uh, we're, we're all a little bit different. We do things slightly different given the environment, uh, but we're all in the same business and it's a very small world. It, it absolutely is very small. Animal health is constantly threatened by the exposure of mycotoxins in feed. The monitoring of fungal toxins has become indispensable in the feed industry and in animal production. DSM offers a range of analytical services to assess the mycotoxin contamination and solutions to combat mycotoxins. Learn more at dsm.com forward slash mycotoxin dash survey. So did you, I, maybe I missed this, but when you were, you know, you were living in Illinois and you were looking around where to go to school, was, was veterinarian always the end goal for you? Or is that something that you realized like halfway through grad, your undergrad, like, Hey, I would really like to, I think I want to pursue vet school. So, so I, I was never, I was pre-vet for like, my first semester of college and that was it. So I don't know the mindset behind that, like going through it. So maybe fill us in a bit on that. Yeah, actually as, as a kid, I should have touched on that as a kid. I really just, uh, I, I really had a, a passion for science and medicine. I, I had every intention to go into uh, human medical practice and I oh. want to go to medical school. And I, as I progressed through and I, I was in high school by the, by the time I kind of really wrapped my head around this, uh, but I was in high school and my dad kind of flat out asked me, I love that he asked me, just, what do you want to do with your life? I was like, okay, that kind of caught me off guard. And I thought <laughs> for a while and I'm like, you know, I said, I, I love science. I love medicine. I, I, you know, but I love agriculture. I think I love agriculture even more. I want to be involved with the beef business. I mean, that's where my, you know, my passion is. That's where our family has come from. Like that's, I need that a part of my life. And that's mm -hmm. where I realized pretty quick that eh, human medicine and working inside probably wasn't going to be for me. But if I can take both of those passions, science and medicine and, and agriculture, put it all together and be a cattle vet, that just that that's just the highlight, the primo, anything that I could ever think about that. That, that was it just seemed like a perfect fit. And from that point in time, I never let up. I mean, it, it was I made that decision. I'm going to be a cattle veterinarian. And I mm -hmm. took off and never look back. That's great. That's a trifecta. It sounds like that you hit on all you're hitting on all cylinders of exactly what you wanted to do. It so far, <laughs> so, so far in, in all the different things that I've, I've been able to do. Uh, I, I've enjoyed every minute of it. And so it's, it, it makes it a lot of fun. So you're cattle, but like if my daughter's 4-H goats next year need some help, like we could, you could help us out with that. Oh, or of you, course. So actually have a little experience so with, practice with that. I don't know how that works in like staying up with other species, how that goes or not. But well, thankfully, with uh, with veterinary medicine, it's a uh, lifelong learning. <laughs> so we still do continue. I still do continuing education every year, probably way more than what I, I really need. But I'm still licensed in a couple of states. Um, you know, I do have some experience with actually with some uh, some grower lamb operations, some large oh. lots with lambs. 
uh, dealt with one when I was in practice. So, uh, you know, still have some of that background. I, I, I don't let that out too much, but I, I, I do tell some people, yeah, I know I, I hear about a small room. You just told a podcast, AJ, so maybe that you should. <laughs> I guess that's I okay. I put you on the spot. Well, I want to go back to the Canada. Like when you were in Canada, you know, the bio I read said you worked on, you know, training employees and, and feed yard health and things like that. But federal export and import duties. I am not aware of that. Maybe our audience is more well-versed in that than I am. But maybe can can you tell me more about that? I've, I've, that's very intriguing to me. Yeah. So it's a it was a, a pretty unique practice that I was in and, uh, you know, really only had about four clients, four or five clients total. <laughs> You know, so mo most uh, practitioners may have uh, hundreds of, of individual clients. You know, I had, uh, you know, what, you know, the amount of clients I could count on one hand, uh, but they were high end operators. We were a part of the, you know, kind of the management team, uh, you know, very hands on daily. I was at a lot of these different yards, uh, working with the crews, working with uh, just monitoring everything. Uh, so it, it was a it was a great exposure and, and, and just a, a great environment to be able to work in, to work with all those employees. Uh, but on the import-export, so because Canada and the U.S. cattle markets are so closely aligned, uh, their beef industry, their feeding industry, they have way more feeding capacity than they do slaughter capacity for beef production, and especially in Western Canada. So the, the vast majority of cattle on feed in Canada are, are in Alberta. Um, you know, there's cow-calf all over the place, but when we look at the feeding sector, it's kind of like the U.S. We have, you know, the, you know, Texas, Western, uh, Western Kansas, uh, Nebraska is kind of the, the beef belt through there. Uh, well, Southern Alberta is kind of known as the, the, you know, the beef corridor, kind of the beef belt, the feedlot corridor in Alberta. Uh, so they're close to the, uh, close to the border. You know, within two hours, most of those feedlots are within two hours of the border, uh, closely aligned markets-wise and everything else with the U.S. market. Uh, they feed to the same specs, uh, very similar animals, but they just need a place to slaughter them. So uh, depending on the year, depending on the economics behind it, uh, some of those animals that are being fed in Alberta will ship to the United States for direct slaughter. They don't go anywhere else. They don't stop at a feedlot. They don't go anywhere else. Uh, it's it's a sealed truck that I, you know, would look at them. I would verify them, fill out all the health papers and transport papers. They would get on those trucks and they would go straight to the abattoir. So it's a uh, it, it was it was interesting. I got to look at a lot of fat cattle. So every single animal had to be, you know, looked at by the veterinarian. So it, it's kind of like a USDA accreditation up there, except for up there it's CFIA. Uh, but so you have your accreditation. You do you're working on behalf of the government to be able to do the inspections. And no, so I did an enormous amount of that. And at the same time, again, depending on markets, sometimes there would be cattle on the U.S. side that operators would buy as feeders. So they were born in the U.S. They would go across the border to get fed and then they come back as a finished animal. So, yeah. Yeah, I just, that's really interesting. As you're talking about that, how they would go straight to the the slaughter facility, I'm thinking you take out the issue of them having to like acclimate, acclimate between, you know, like geographies and climates, because I imagine I've only been to Canada. I've been to Canada twice in the summer. It is cooler in the summer there than it is here. I feel like if you're bringing them down in the summer, they're going to have to like acclimate to that 
you know, maybe. But if you're just taking them straight to the slaughterhouse, it doesn't seem like they're going to have to acclimate to the heat or changes in the weather. Well, and yeah, I guess, no, yes. One, there's no acclimation. Two, uh, it, Southern Alberta is an interesting area. And I think that's what makes it the biggest cattle feeding region of, of that country is the, the, the climate, both during the winter and during the summer, mimic very close. Uh, it always reminded me of Denver. So if you go through Denver, you know, it snows in Denver, but then it melts pretty quick. Yeah, well, yeah. It, it's very similar from Calgary South in Alberta that they get these uh, Chinook winds that blow off the Pacific Ocean that uh, kind of warms it up during the winter. That melts off a lot of that snow. But then mm -hmm. during the summer, they still get some pretty hot temperatures. So it's, uh, it's a pretty unique place. It's it's dry, which really helps for cattle feeding. Uh, yeah. But the, the climate is very similar. I always put it on kind of that same feel as kind of the Denver area and just east of Denver. Yeah, well, that's interesting. That was that's one of the places I've been to in Canada was Calgary for a conference or something. I don't know. Seems like 30 years ago. It wasn't that long ago, but it feels like it. And um, I remember it, it not being like cold, but it wasn't, you know, like triple degree heat like we have here. It was a welcome reprieve in late July from the heat that we have. So that's interesting. Um, I appreciate you sharing that with us because, you know, like I said, maybe some of our audience understood what that was in your bio, but I sure didn't. So um, but while we're on the subject of heat, because that's basically all we talk about from, you know, June through August, um, it is, you know, two weeks ago here in Kansas, we had like triple degree heat. That wasn't the heat index. That was the actual temperature, which I kind of believe like if it feels like 123, it, it actually is 123. But I, my husband disagrees with me on that. So I guess that's a point of contention. But when the actual temperature is three digits, like that's hard on people and all animals and such. And so I know that heat stress is something that you've worked a lot on um, in your past and, and research and your, you know, your consulting and things like that. And so just for the focus of maybe here, we could talk about cow calf for the sake of this conversation and maybe go to feed yard and, and stalkers in a bit, but, and what are we supposed to do in uh when it's triple degree heat, what are we supposed to do for this? Oh yeah. And that's, that's, that's what the question everybody has is what can we do? What's the most efficient thing to do? How do, how do we best care for our animals? And, and that's, uh, that it's been a key focus of mine on kind of an environmental, uh, you know, environmental stressors, both on the cold side and on the hot side, you know, how do we, how do we make every day count whenever we're producing animals, when we're caring for our animals, looking after their well being on it every single day, 365 days, you know, a year, we're looking after their well-being. And when things, we can't control the weather, but how do we mitigate the impacts of weather on our animals? I think that's that's what we all should have uh, some type of a plan going forward. For. Uh, so when things get extreme, when things get hot, yes, number one, having a plan, what do you do? Uh, I, I think the first plan for any operation is back to the basics. And that's kind of how I, I work through with, with operators. It's like, okay, what what do these animals need most in that given time? Um, so, and I, I walked through and explained what's happening to the animal itself. Uh, the animal, as temperature rises, they have to dissipate heat, right? We get hot. And like, I, I know last weekend, uh, last week uh, when it was hot and two, week, two weeks ago, I was sweating through entire sets of clothes. Well, people, we, we sweat. We sweat, we move, we drink more water, uh, we get in the shade. It's, it's not too far different from what cattle do, is behaviorally they change. Um, so we will see that change in our pasture cows. 
whether it's mama cows, whether it's stalkers, you name it, we will see some of these behavioral changes. Uh, so instead of sweating, cattle are inherently pretty poor at sweating. They only sweat about 10% as much as what people do. Um, so they can't, yeah, they can't wet themselves. And the, the whole idea with uh, evaporative cooling and sweating is you wet the outside, a breeze comes by, pulls off and evaporates that, that water, and it pulls heat whenever it, it evaporates. So you actually you cool yourself uh, through convection. It doesn't help when the wind feels like the hot like feels like it came off the surface of the sun a hot wind is not cooling anybody off i just want to make that make throw that out in the universe so so i i, I think about that as the blast furnace right so yeah. it, right. it's the blast furnace of hot air blowing yeah um, like when you open the oven and it like kind of blows up in your face and that's what it feels like to me and i'm not getting cool that way but no no so i in a perfect world we have a cooling breeze that blows that heat off um but there there are other things is you know the behavior cattle find areas that are more comfortable because if they just can't stand there they increase the respiratory rate they pant just kind of like a dog whenever a dog gets hot you know, they'll start to pant. Well, that's kind of what cattle do to help blow off some of the heat. They use their, their lungs to blow off heat, but then they move. They try to find a place that's more comfortable. And when given an opportunity, uh, it's fun to watch pasture cattle because they will find areas on the side of hills, not necessarily out of the sun, but they will find it where there's drafts of wind moving either up or down some of those hills that is more comfortable than other places. So they'll, they'll find that. Uh, Shade-seeking behavior is huge. Uh, I, I was in su southeastern Colorado not long ago. I think it was last summer, and was driving along, and every single behind every single telephone pole was a line of cows. So I mean, this is section <laughs> upon section of cattle, and, and it's they're all lined up next to telephone poles. But they were they were seeking that sh the shade. Um, yeah, I mean, so shade is huge, and and sometimes we just have to sit back and look at what are our animals asking. For? Uh, you know, here in the Flint Hills, if there's low-lying areas, if there's some the, some shade, if there's some water, uh, they're going to want to go drink. They're going to go, you know, some of them slop around in some of our ponds a little bit too much, in my opinion. But they, they seek out shade. They seek out comfortable areas where they're getting a better breeze. Well, yeah, I definitely see all those things. Um, I didn't realize that they could find like a breeze on the side of a hill. So I'm going to start paying more attention on these. Uh, we are full into fall calving at our house, even though it's just, you know, the first of September. Um, but we go in the evenings after we get off work and stuff like that. And so I'm going to be looking for those places on hills where I can go like sit while we're, <laughs> while we're driving around. My husband can go drive around. I'm going to sit on the side of the hill. But um, for us, you know, you're talking about cow calf pretty, you know, we were talking about that, but like for us, you know, stalkers, that's also grass cattle is a big part and feed yards had like heat stress is a whole nother monster for, for feed yards. So on this, on the stalker and grass cattle side, like for the audience who can't, who is listening to this and isn't watching the video, like I have hat hair and look really great today because I came straight from shipping our grass cattle uh, to this interview. So, you know, we were saddled and, and pulling out of the driveway about 630 this morning to get those stalkers gathered and, and get them on the truck before it got hot this morning. You know, I mean, is there anything different than what you do with a cow cat with, with a cow cat herd that you would do with stalkers? Like, you know, they have water, we're making sure they've got minerals so that they will drink more water. You know, what, is there anything else that we can do other than, you know, making sure we're water, mineral, 
and then not working them in the, you know, the hottest part of the day. Is there something that I'm missing here? Yeah, so you hit the, the key, key points, but I think fine-tuning some of those pieces. Uh, so you mentioned water. Uh, unfortunately, not all water is equivalent, right? If we have the one stagnant pond that's yeah. out there that our animals are, are trying to drink out of, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot to how much water and animal needs on a daily basis. Temperature is one thing, uh, you know, cycle, you know, so are they a pregnant cow? Are they a lactating cow? Are they a stalker animal? You know, what are they? It mm -hmm. you know, dictates on how heavy they are, how many, what their water needs are, but also water quality and, and temperature can play a key role in how much they actually consume. So yeah. um, imagine this, if it, I'm, I'm sure uh, many listeners have, have gone out to a farm pond and if it's right in the middle of the summer, uh, you stick your hand in there, the first six, eight, six inches is really scalding hot, like it's mm -hmm. really warm, and then it's yeah. very cool underneath. Well, animals that drink cooler water during the heat of the summer require less and it's more efficient at helping cool those animals. So the surface water is kind of less effective at cooling animals and they need more of it compared to some of our improved water systems, either uh, if you pipe water and, and, and put it into a tank from a lower lower yeah. area within the, the, the water, so or, uh, the pond itself. So we can pipe that into a water tank, which they actually consume water more readily out of a tank rather than a pond, rather than a stream. It's kind of kind of funny how they do that. Uh, so improve either pipe from a pond, a, a spring fed or, or a well, uh, that cool water coming out of the, either the earth or coming out of the, the cooler areas of the pond is more efficient at cooling those animals. So uh, on top of water quality, so it's cooler, they'll consume more of it more readily, they'll cool themselves, but then it's access. So access is something that we... And I'll just say we as, you know, as researchers and everything that's out there as producers, we, uh, we don't have the best information, I'll say, on some of that. Um, but how many animals can go and actually truly take a drink all at the same time? And, oh, yeah. and, and one, of the, one of the issues we run into with, uh, with all cattle is they'll, they'll crowd around certain water tanks and they're not drinking. Some animals really need to drink, but there are other ones that just uh, sit, you know, go up to the, the water tank and then hold their head right above the water to help cool themselves. Oh. So they're not drinking, but they're, they just like to feel the nice, cool water. Well, yeah. they're taking the space of another animal that is really thirsty that would really benefit from consuming water. So yeah. we have to be cautious. Do we have enough water tank capacity and enough flow that, say, we, you know, I've work with some bigger operations that may have a thousand animals within a pasture, they come to a, a windmill. How fast will that windmill fill? <laughs> oh, the, yeah. A thousand, yeah. A thousand animals, you know, off a big water tank, they will scarf that water, that, that entire thing right down. But how right. quick will it refill for the other animals to keep consuming water? So those are all, it's tank capacity, mm -hmm. uh, availability and reflow and temperature that all goes into keeping those animals comfortable in a pasture setting. Uh, so outside of that, animals, if given an opportunity, they will find those comfortable areas. So yeah. and thankfully for that, in, in making sure that, you know, they have some type of shade, they have some type of recourse, that they have a comfortable area to go find in, in hills and things like that, uh, they will find it. But we really can control the water. I know it's an expense, it's an investment in the operation, uh, but having that cool, clean, abundant source of water during the summer months really helps 
long-term for animal comfort and productivity. So we, we, we can't forget that uh, water intake drives feed intake. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. I was thinking when you were talking about when they're all crowded up at the bunk, like not only are they like that, you know, let's say that steer that's just hovering there and it's cooling itself. It's not really drinking. But when they're all crowded up there, like that's creating heat. They're all stuck up there together. That dude that's already hot and wants a drink. You know, he's stuck there in that crowd and is getting hotter because he can't get to the tank. I have to imagine that plays a little bit of a, you know, that's just an additional concern, I'm guessing. No, you're, you're spot on. I mean, they group up whenever they group up, they don't cool like they should. They're not dissipating the heat. They're not taking advantage of all the breezes and things that, that are available to them because all they're focused on is, is holding their head and crowding up next to each other to get close to that water. Yeah. So I, I won't say what I was thinking, but basically it was going to make a joke. It was going to make a joke at the expense of cattle. It wasn't a horrible thing, but um, and then feed yards, this is, I think that this is really important. I'm, and I'm just like making you go down the list of heat stress and how to manage it. But I think it's really important because I mean, I don't live in like the very Southern point of the United States for a reason. I have zero heat tolerance, but there's a lot of cattle down there. There's a, sorry, there's a fly that's attacking me here in my office folks. Um, so I'm having Dr. Tarpoff go down through all these different segments of the beef industry and how we can control heat there. But if you remember like June of 2022, we had that horrible event where all those feedlot cattle died because of a combination of humidity and they couldn't get cooled down at night and then it got hot during the day. It was just like a really horrible incident that like was pretty much out of people's hands. You can't prevent a, a mass um, event. Like we can't control the weather. You said it perfectly. We cannot control the weather. In normal instances of the summer where you don't have some weird weather phenomenon like that, you know, what's, what's some great practices for feed yards to have to, to avoid that heat stress as best as they can. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I guess I should have started this when we first started talking about heat stress, but monitoring. You know, you, you were talking about how you and your husband were talking about actual temperature versus, you know, how it feels outside. Well, we act, that, that's very true with cattle. Uh, so how you and I portray the environment and how cattle feel the environment, they're very different things. Uh, I wish I was as tough as cattle. I wish I could... <laughs> you know, sustained in any given environment, just like cattle. I mean, we have cattle yeah. in all 50 states. All yeah. 50 states, we can successfully raise at comfortable animals within those given environments. Um, I wish I was that adaptable. I'm not as adaptable to the heat, I found out. So, but, but so it's how do we monitor the conditions for our animals? How do we know when they're comfortable? How do we plan ahead if there's going to be those uncomfortable times where we can step up our management to help them? Uh, so here in the state of Kansas, I've actually actually been working with some of our climate folks. Uh, it's called the Kansas Mesonet, and there's a animal there's an animal comfort index that's actually within that Kansas Mesonet. And the the Mesonet and there's Mesonets that are available in several different states, uh, but this one in particular uses that cattle comfort index that takes into account temperature, humidity, wind speed, and solar radiation, which are the core key factors of heat stress. So they're able to use those four factors, put it through a model, and then give you a number on basically, it, you know, it, what we refer to as a temperature, but it's how the animal feels the given environment. Uh, so th that's a phenomenal tool. We actually just launched this year in June a seven-day forecast, actually using that National Weather Service forecast. Um, there's localized information through about 100 different stations all through the state of Kansas. Uh, so you can see what your local information is 
you've got the National Weather Service forecast if that is plugged into the model. So you, now you know, hey, three days from now, we, there might be some heat stress for a couple of days. So that gives us an opportunity. And, and whether you use a tool like the Mesonet and the, the Comfort Index, uh, you use your your regular seven day forecast. You know, everybody has an app on their phone now nowadays yeah. looking at the temperature and the forecast. I look at mine at least five times a day because I never yeah. know. It's like I go, oh, I forgot what's happening three days from now. But <laughs> yeah, I have mine pinned on the home screen of my phone. It stays there. Yeah, so we can. We're always trying to check the water, and those of those those of us in ag, it's it's pretty com, com, common that we we're always checking the weather for whatever we're yeah. going to do, and we use it for our planning. Well, whatever you use, keep that in mind that it's not just temperature, it's not just humidity, but wind speed and solar radiation. But when there are days of some of those extremes, now we've got a plan ahead. What whatever your plan is, and every operation is a little bit different. But then it's okay. We have to change. We're changing our management. We need to flip the switch. All hands on deck. Let's make a change to make sure and ensure the comfort of those animals. So we try to get those implemented prior to the heat episode or prior to the heat event. Um, right. And, and I, I say a heat episode or a heat event. It's usually two to three days of you know kind of that that uncomfortable temperature. Yeah. Um, so we monitor. We try to flip that switch. And then for for feedlot cattle, boy, it's it can take a lot of different uh, terms. Number one, it starts at, with pen construction. I was in Western Kansas and I had some students with me. We were doing some sampling and they said, well, why are these, there are these mounds and these pens? It doesn't make sense. Shouldn't they be flat? And I said, okay, are you hot, right? We were down in the bottom of one of these gullies and they go, are you, is it hot here? And they go, yeah. I said, well, follow me up here. We went to the top of this mound and there was this nice, wonderful breeze oh, yeah. right through and all the cattle wanted to be up there. And I said, is it more comfortable up here? And their jaw just dropped. They're like, I can't believe there's this much difference within one pit. Well, yeah. the same thing, just like out in a pasture, there are more mm -hmm. comfortable areas. We mound pens, we have good runoff, uh, making sure that, you know, so pen construction is key. That starts well before a heat event. Um, number two is water. Okay, water tank capacity, just like we were talking about in pasture right. animals. Uh, if there's, if you're concerned, obviously, if, if you have, uh, you know, animals that are, if you have uh, near to finish cattle, okay, near, near to harvest animals, um, obviously they're big, they have a lot more surface area. Well, okay, can we split pens? Do you have access to where you can uh, take one pen of animals and split them into two? You just doubled your water tank capacity. You increase all of that extra space for those animals to help dissipate heat. Uh, you know, so those are simple things. Uh, three, making the decision on labor. Like you talked about, you were going out saddled up at 630 to go gather cattle. Yeah. yeah. At the feedlot, there's a lot of animal movements that need to happen on a daily basis, whether mm -hmm. it's uh, processing, shipping, it's re-implanting. Re go up and down the list. There's all these, these necessary tasks is we need to have them all done by about 10.30. So yeah. now we're changing labor times. It's maybe we're working earlier in the morning. Maybe we change some feeding times where uh, we, we know those animals won't be you know consuming feed during the heat of the day. So maybe we change some of those things. Uh, so labor, we, we change the labor to help address some of those issues because we don't want to disrupt cattle during the heat of the day. No, uh, this yeah. goes all the way, yeah, this, this goes to talking about uh, working with the, the packer. And it's like, okay, when can we ship these to you to make sure that we aren't stressing these animals, that they're going to step off the truck and go straight in into the plant? 
right? Yeah. So it, it's, and that's, that's a huge, that is a, probably one of the most important jobs on, on factoring all that in. And so it's, uh, so labor is a key one. Uh, the other is a pin environment. Uh, we can do some different things with, uh, you know, we think about feedlot cattle and a dirt floor, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that dirt floor can absorb quite a bit of heat during the heat of the day. And I'm sure, uh, I'm sure a lot of us have been out on, uh, think about it, you walk out on, you know, asphalt would be extreme, but you, you can yeah. feel a darker surface oh, yeah. with heat. Uh, dirt doesn't hold near as much heat as what asphalt does, but it will be much, much warmer. Well, what we can do is we can, we can use bedding. So whether it's straw or whether it's corn stalks, we can drop the pin floor temperature by about 25 degrees by using 25? something like that. Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize it was that like uh, dynamic, I guess, of a change. It just, it, it, we, we use, you know, that solar radiation. It's amazing how much it can, it can absorb into dark. You know, it, those of you that have uh, black vehicles, I've got a, I've got a black pickup with black leather seats and I'll tell you that absorbs an enormous amount of heat during the summer. That was that two weeks ago. <laughs> I had, yeah, well, and two weeks ago, my, my AC wasn't working quite right. Oh, so no. I, I definitely felt the, felt the impacts, but I wish I could have put some straw over my pickup to make sure that I didn't have absorption during that time. It, but it, it's the same for cattle. Um, so we can bed pens. Uh, sprinklers are an interesting uh, piece because um, at, we recently did a survey asking operators what they think about certain things. And, and uh, sprinklers were really intermediate. Like people are like, eh, we kind of use them. We don't really want to. Um, and the data out there is kind of minimal. But what we can run into is most of our sprinkler systems in, in commercial operations, uh, they're there for dust mitigation if they have to. Uh, so they don't necessarily, it's like we're not really wetting animals. So it's in, in those scenarios, we really, we use them at strategic times of the day to cool the pen floor, right? right. So we can use them overnight hours and yeah. it's kind of like we make the ground sweat. We dampen yeah. it down just a little bit and we allow, you know, rest, you know, we, we allow it to evaporate. Um, but if we use them during the heat of the day, those regular sprinkler systems don't really wet the animals all the way down to the skin. And what we can do is, well, if we make puddles, we just kind of dampen animals. We don't wet them. We don't keep them constantly wet uh, because of flow. Well, that can actually be a problem where we can have a microclimate that increases humidity. So now we can accidentally make things worse, which is what we don't want to do. So in some of those extreme scenarios, it'd almost be ideal if you could move animals through, wet them down completely, and then move them into a dry area. (laughs) So. Yeah. yeah, we see what that um, that wedding uh, like factor or aspect, I guess, like with horses, you know, if, if I've had to be out in a, on a really hot day on a horse, like whenever I'm spraying one off, I'm not leaving that like water sit on them. You know, I'm like scraping it off with the sweat scraper because if it sits on them, it just like creates hot water on them. And that that's not great. So like it's I understand what you're saying when you're talking about like just you're creating a more humid environment to keep that heat on them that makes a lot of sense to me when you scrape your horse that you know when they're wet after you wetting them down you start scraping them uh have you ever felt the temperature of that water as you're scraping yeah. them off it's not cold it's no. <laughs> it warms it's cold when it goes on and it's real warm and it comes off so i just think like i don't want to get like it's essentially i'm taking their like hot bath water off of them when i you know scrape it off with a sweat scraper and so i feel bad but i know they need to cool down and that helps and so um, I just try to avoid riding in the middle of the day as much as I can. But sometimes if you're up 
I'm in the slack of rodeo. I can't really control that it's the hottest part of the day. So, but um, this is not the rodeo podcast, so we won't delve into that. But that is, um, yeah, it's just really, I, I think that that's important for people to hear that, you know, maybe people who aren't involved in feed yard every day or don't have much experience that like, that sprays and misters aren't, you know, like a magic solution. And that's why they're not like in every single feedlot everywhere. Like they're, as you're saying, there are situations in which they're used and they're not perfect. So I think that that's, you know, that's important to discuss that. But sometimes it's the simplest thing that can make a big impact. Um, you know, it's, it's recognizing there's a big haystack that's blocking a breeze and taking the time and effort to go move the haystack and all of a sudden, or, or take the haystack down to a lower level. And all of a sudden that allows all the breeze. Uh, you know, I, I convinced one operation to go mow down the weeds on the perimeter pen, you know, the external pen, knocking down all the weeds. All of a sudden we got increased wind, uh, breeze blowing through there and those perimeter pens were way more comfortable. So sometimes it's that those, those simple chores, the simple things that we just need to observe. We need to open our eyes. We need to uh, keep in mind that, okay, well, so those things do matter and they can make a huge impact. Yeah. Little things add up to like a big impact. That's a, that's a great point. Um, so speaking on kind of like industry wide things and, and animal health and such, like where do you see kind of like the beef industry going in the next five to 10 years in terms of health management, you know, well-being management, those kind of things. I know that you're, your, um, your training isn't in like specifically in animal well-being and behavior, but I know that you have done a lot of work in that area as evidenced by all the heat stress discussion. Um, you know, where, where do you kind of see us going in that respect? Yeah, and, and where I see things going uh, from, that, from that point of view is really bringing together and having a better understanding of animal comfort, productivity, bringing those things together and realizing that when we have an animal that is less impacted by environmental scenarios, by different disruptions, doesn't matter what the disruption is, but we we utilize the, the comfort, behavior, productivity, health, and that they all interact with each other. And I, I think we're, we're right on the verge of understanding way more about that and using that to our advantage, using it to the animal's advantage to reduce reduce risk increase health, increase performance, increase cattle comfort on a daily basis, which, you know, we're, we're trying to produce that high quality protein, that, that high quality superior eatability protein, and every day matters. And, and if we're trying to, you know, let that animal uh, do its, you know, its, you know, reach its genetic capabilities, every day matters on our, on our point of view as animal caretakers is every day matters. And if we can uh, minimize any bumps in the road, we're going to end up with a better uh, quality product at the end. So I, I think it's, I, I think over the next five and 10 years, we're going to start evolving how we think about it. It's not, I just do this and this is the, the you know, however increase in gain or things like this, but it's, if I do this, it impacts gain, it impacts, uh, you know, how much manure I'm hauling out. It, it impacts, uh, you know, the, the animal comfort you know, it, the animal health, I think all of it's going to coincide and uh, just finished a, a pretty cool project that we started to kind of wrap our heads around that and water. Okay. If we make a couple of different management decisions, how much less water do we need to use? And that, that you know, it's been eye opening. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, it's just, 
things are so interconnected, right? There's no silos in animal health and management. Like everything, these are human, or they're not humans, they're living beings and everything is interconnected. So I, I, it's interesting that you said that and it'll be, um, fun isn't the right word, but just, just watching, you know, where we're going to go, you know, over the next decade is it's really intriguing to me. We have a time and labor saving product for you. Beef and dairy agrislat by healthy farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With beef and dairy agrislat, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year and it works to break down solids, reduces crusting and forming. To learn more, visit myhealthyfarms.com. It's time for our famous three. So, well, we are coming to the end of our time. Um, so I, and I, we want to be thoughtful of your time, but we ask our same, we ask our guests the same three questions at the end of every episode. And I gave you a heads up on these. So, um, cause I didn't want to spring them on you at the last minute. So we ask these same wrap up questions of every person. And so the first one is what is your favorite beef or cattle related book or resource? If it, it doesn't have to be a book, like maybe a website or pamphlet or something like that. I don't know. So I, th this one's an easy one and I, I've got a tote our beef extension website, ksubeef.org. Uh, ksubeef.org is the Kansas State uh, Beef Extension website. Uh, this is where we house a lot of our information, all our upcoming meetings, a ton, a ton of resources. We have fact sheets. We have all of our newsletters, all of our write-ups. Uh, you know, we have different links to a lot of other industry industry resources, beef quality assurance, you name it. But it's, it's a nice, we've really tried to develop a one-stop shop uh, if you have questions, uh, we have experts. Uh, we have new, we have our nutritionists on staff. We have a repro-physiologist. You know, we, uh, we we have a lot of experts, and they might be in your area. If you're in Kansas, doesn't matter if you're in Kansas or beyond. Uh, but if you have questions, that this is what we do. We answer producer questions. So we we want to make sure we are visible. Uh, we are available. We have our our phone numbers, our emails. Everybody responds to email nowadays. So. Uh, jump on KSU Beef, uh, see what you can find. If you have questions, we've got people to help. What is that commercial? There's like some, it might be like Lowe's or something like that, but like you've got questions, we've got answers. Yeah. So that's, <laughs> that's the Maybe we need to right steal there. that slogan. I, I don't know. Maybe, we might have to. <laughs> it may be that great of a slogan since I can't remember the company whose it is, but I do know that that's the, we, you've got questions, we got answers. So that's for, if you're writing this down, it's ksu.beef.org. Um, all right. So the next question is, what is a book not related to the beef industry that you are currently reading? So I, uh, well, I, it, it's not actually a book. I, I have never been a big podcast person, but I, I got, I well, am no offense that. to that. No <laughs> offense to that. I just, I, 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 I just updated my, this is the second smartphone I've ever had. So I, I'm just getting into the realm of podcasts, but it's called, uh, it, it does a lot of kind of historical, uh, it's a podcast called Bear Grease, and it talks about mountain men and how they came across and settled the U.S. and all these historic, you know, hunters and people that, uh, you know, bear hunters and stuff like that, some of the market hunters, uh, you know, all the way talking about uh, the Mississippi River and how it has developed over millennia. And growing up just off the Mississippi, the last several episodes have been about that, but I, I've just gotten a kick out of it. So every time I drive somewhere, I'm listening to Bear Grease. 
Tire grease. I have never heard of that one. That is really interesting. I will have to tell that to my husband. He's a big hunter and likes the uh, his, histor historical discussion. Perspective. That perspective. Yeah. There you go. Um, so that's great. I will have to remember that one. Bear grease. Okay. And so the last question is, think of a person that you look up to or, or admire and tell us a trait that they have that has enabled them to be successful. So I, it, when I originally got this question, I started thinking about some of the mentors and some of the people that I truly, truly look up to. And it is, they're, they're a resource. And I, I think that, that, you know, the trait of being a resource is, means you're available, you teach, you're approachable. You have all of these, you have all of these traits that go together that you're, you're a resource of information, but you use that resource of information in a practical way to help people. And I, I, I look in, in my life, all my mentors, all the people I've looked up to for my entire life, they've been a resource for me. And I think they're a resource for others as well. And it's they're, they're willing to help. They are knowledgeable. They are good. They're, they are a resource to help. And I, I think that's, that's what I've always strived to do is try to be a resource to be able to help people. Because, uh, yeah, that's, uh, nobody cares how much you know until they find out how much you care. And I think, I think as a resource is it, you're, you're doing that. You, you care, you're going out of your way to be able to help people. Yeah, that's fabulous. That's a great Benjamin Franklin quote right there. Um, but that's great. And, and I agree. Like I think about people who have helped me get to, you know, where I'm at in my career and, and they have a lot of that same stuff in common. Like they're willing to answer my silly questions and, and provide advice. And I think that's great. Cause those are the people that, um, are there leading, but also want to help the next like generation of leaders. So yeah, I think that that's a great, that's a really positive thing to end on after we've talked about this depressing heat stress this whole time. So, uh, but that's great. Well, those, I hope that you all wrote those down. Um, that is all the time we have to, for today though, Dr. Tarpoff. I, I do so very much appreciate you joining us here on the Beef Podcast and for sharing your time and your talents and your wisdom with us. It's greatly appreciated. If people want to find more information about you or your research, um, where can they go to do that? Is, there, is that also ksu.beef.org or is there another spot you want to send them as well? Yeah, uh, ksubeef.org. So no dot in the middle, but ksubeef.org. Uh, oh, that. Yep. And we've got all of our field day events and everything. We've got uh, all of our information, contact everything from uh, both my research, my colleagues' research, uh, but everything will be available on that KSU. Beef.org website. That's ksubeef.org, and I'm putting, we will make sure that that is in the show notes for those of you who are watching, and that hopefully that you didn't hear me put an extra dot in there, but um, ksubeef.org, we'll make sure that's available. Um, thank you again, Dr. Tarpoff. It's been really great to catch up with you. I hadn't seen you in a couple years, so this is good to, to chat with you. So thank you for joining us, and to our audience, we hope that you will join us next week for uh, the next episode of the Beef Podcast Show. Thank you.